Well, it's good to be back from my sabbatical and stand up here again. It uh, feels both great and kind of weird a little bit. Um, it's wonderful to be back with friends. Uh, over the last several months, I've been able to visit a lot of other churches and participate in several different worship experiences. But one thing you miss is the community. A big part of a church is the family community in that. So it's great to be back among friends and family. Well, uh, during my time in my sabbatical, I took a couple of courses at Regent, one on the early church fathers, first sort of three to 400 years of how the church fathers interpreted scripture. And I also took another course on culture and theology, which looked at different periods of time in history, different countries in the world, and how Christians engaged in their culture uh, in light of what Scripture had to say. Well, with no preaching assignments for the three months that I was on sabbatical, it actually was the longest period of time in my 20 years of ministry that I haven't preached a sermon. I, I had a sabbatical in my last church for four months, but uh, at the time I was working on my doctoral work, and just because of when I wrote my thesis and when I had to defend it in that, I actually split it into two shorter sabbaticals of two months, and then back to work, and then two months. So it was my longest break, three months without any preaching, and just sitting and participating in other church services. I worshipped with the Catholics with the Anglicans, with the Alliance, with the Salvation Army, and with a Quaker church during those times, just to try to get some different uh, denominational experience in there. And as a Sabbath is a time for both rest, but also reflection, to make sure that this happened, I made a commitment to myself every time I drove into Regent, which is on the UBC campus. And we live in Delta. So it's a bit of a commute on the UBC campus for the classes that I took every Wednesday and Thursday. And the commitment that I made was to drive there and have no input externally coming into my head. Which meant no radio, no music, no podcasts. No form of media of any source, just me driving my car in silence, listening to the voices in my head. And I say voices because I discovered something during these times as I drove to school, and that is I have voices in my head. I, I have multiple personality disorder. I have several different characters in my head, and they're all seeking attention, and they're debating and arguing and dialoguing and laughing together, and after three months of not preaching, several of my voices all wanted to give today's sermon. And that became a bit of a problem because I had to decide which voice I was going to allow to speak today. And so after much negotiation, I decided to actually let two of my voices speak to you today. Uh, one voice is the jester, right here. And the other voice is the doctor, which is right over here. See, in medieval times, the jester was more than a clown. Uh, the, the, the jester was more like the political satirists of today, 
those people that you watch on this hour has 22 minutes or CBC's this is that or maybe some of you remember the 80s Christian musician Steve Taylor great uh, satirist in his writing of music the jester makes his points through irony through exaggeration he actually means the opposite of what he's saying one of the great masters of satire is pastor Jonathan Swift who wrote Gulliver's Travels and a, a number of uh, the, the tale of the, the tub and other writings like that now in contrast, the medieval doctor, they were the ones that had become an expert in their field. Usually at that time, it would either be in theology or philosophy or medicine. And they had obtained the highest status of education in that area, which meant that their primary role in society was now to teach. They were to teach other people that were entering into those fields of theology, philosophy, medicine, or whatnot. In opposite of the jester, what the doctor would say should be taken at face value. The doctor meant what they said. What they said was meant to be taken exactly as how they said it. And so this morning, I'm going to literally wear two hats. I'm going to let my jester come through, and I'm going to let the doctor come through. And you can listen to the message in light of who's speaking. So in order to begin, I need to put a hat on. Now, one of the things that I also discovered during my quiet time in the car ride to school was that January 1st was essentially the end of my sabbatical. And January 1st, 2019 was significant because all of these times of quiet in the car made me also reflect on New Year's resolution. January 1st is coming. And I have an opportune time to make a New Year's resolution. But you know what we all hate about New Year's resolutions, right? And that is, they have a high failure rate. For instance, last year, the most common thing that Canadians resolved to do was to improve their fitness and their nutrition. January is big business for club fitness, health clubs. Everybody gets memberships in January. That's when they generate much of their revenue. But a resolution to go to the gym doesn't always end up becoming a resolution to work out at the gym. Just because you go to the gym doesn't mean that you're going to work out at the gym, just like you see in this next slide up here. <laughs> so, I've grown tired of failure. So I wanted to come up with a resolution that I could be guaranteed to succeed at. No failure at this year's resolution. So I was thinking about this, driving back and forth, and then it dawned on me. It's pretty hard to fail at messing things up. That has a very high success rate. And so I wanted to resolve in a way that I can guarantee that it would happen. And I said to myself, I will resolve to ruin my life. 2019. 
Now, there are several very typical ways to ruin your life. You could commit adultery. Uh, you could rob a bank. You could hijack an airplane. But, I, but as I thought about those, I said, you know, those are just too easy. There's no challenge behind those ones. I wanted to find a more respectable way to ruin my life, something subtle. And so I thought, tax evasion, that might be one. Or how about binge-watching Fox and CNN? That, that could be another one. Or how about investing in the Edmonton Oilers? I mean, these are all more subtle ways of destroying your life. But then I thought, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. So if I'm going to get life advice, I probably should go to the handbook of life, the Bible, and find out how to ruin my life. I mean, the Bible gives us information on everything, right? So it probably should give me good information on how to ruin my life. And so I went to the Bible, started pouring over the pages, and believe it or not, I found right in the pages of Scripture five proven ways that you can ruin your life. And so, I want to share these with you today to help you also ruin your life. But if you think a year to do this is a little too long, one of the things that you can do as you're thinking this through is if you just put a couple of these together two or three of them together, you probably can ruin your life by the end of January. So if you want to speed up the process, combine them. So grab your pens, grab your pencils, grab your iPad, phone, whatever you use to take notes, and make sure you get these down. I'm going to start by reading the passage. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we'll go from verse 12 on. I'll read the passage first. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king of Israel. I lived in Jerusalem, and I devoted myself to search for understanding, to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. And I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it's all meaningless, it's like chasing after the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. And I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any other king who's ever ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom. I have greater knowledge than anyone else. And so I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly but I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is just like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. So I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with some wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate, to, uh, irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves 
Both men and women and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. And I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasures of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and I had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. And I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. My wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I could just take it. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work and reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked at, so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. The voice of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, Israel's most successful, strongest, richest king ever. Someone who had every worldly pleasure right at his fingertips. There's hardly a better person that we can learn from on how to ruin our life than King Solomon. Because King Solomon was able, with all that he had, to successfully accomplish the goal of ruining his life. And so looking at his life, looking at this passage this morning, I want to give you five guaranteed biblical ways to ruin your life in, 19, or in 2019. And just to help you remember this, I'm also going to alliterate it with the letter W. And so you can remember the five W's of how to ruin your life. The first one is wisdom. Now, this one may surprise you, because when you think of wisdom, you might think that, but wait a minute, wisdom seems like the very thing to help you fail at failure, and aren't we trying to succeed at failure? Well, of course, there is a type of wisdom that you do want to avoid if you want to fail at life, but that's not the kind of wisdom that we're talking about here. Uh, listen to what Solomon says. He says, I, the teacher, king of Israel, I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to the search for understanding, to explore everything that uh, wisdom had done under heaven. I, I looked into all the different types of knowledge. I set out to learn everything from wisdom. But I learned that the pursuit of these kinds of things is like chasing after the wind. See, the pursuit of wisdom that Solomon's talking about here is the amassing of knowledge, education, marks, degrees, school, grades, as putting these things as utmost importance in your life, pursuing those things to find your identity in them. This is a great way to lead your life towards unhappiness. Knowledge also can puff up. It can make us arrogant. In fact, even Bible knowledge can do this. One of the possible benefits of Bible memorization is the opportunity that it gives you to be an annoying person. Even better, if you really 
take all the Bible memorization and just make it all about the knowledge, you can become a divisive and unloving person. The Bible teacher John Calvin even warned by saying, the word is not received in faith when it merely flutters in the brain, but when it takes deep root in the heart. Now, of course, we don't want to take John Calvin's advice here. Of course, we want to allow the Bible to only flutter in our brain because we're trying to ruin our life. Uh, we have to make sure that that's the level it stays at. Because once the Bible begins to take deep root into our heart, it becomes quite inconvenient. Whereas when the Bible merely flutters the brain, it can be a great tool in helping you get what you want out of life. The writer of the book of James gives similar advice to what John Calvin has to say. If you go to the book of James... You will find in James 1, 22 to 25, James writing these words. James 1, 22, but don't just listen to God's word. Don't just memorize it. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. If you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and then you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says, and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now, obviously, James doesn't understand the virtue of forgetting your Bible verses as quickly as you memorized them. James doesn't understand that there's great virtue in looking at yourself in the mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you look like. Because let's face it, a lot of us don't want to remember what we look like. Uh, and, and to have the Bible become soaked into our very being is something that can change our life for the better. But instead, what we want is to ruin our life. So it's much better to kind of have a sloppy mishmash of biblical ideas. Uh, you kind of remember this verse and kind of remember this idea. And then you saw a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car that had a fish on it. And you kind of slammed that together. And then you heard something on uh, an iPod that you listened to. And, and then something else on the radio. And just kind of mash it up all together. This will help you ruin your life. And then if you can stand by the things that you believe with lots of anger, because most people will interpret that as passion, you will become a person that is annoying and unloving and divisive, and you can ruin the people's lives around you also. It's a wonderful tool. You just have to remember to avoid people that actually know their Bible. Stay away from them. Don't join their Bible studies. Now, one of the problems, however, of pursuing wisdom as a way to ruin your life is that it usually takes a long time. And I don't know about you, but I don't like things that take a long time. And so, if you want to destroy your life through the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of education, even in a biblical way, prepare for the long haul. But I have some other approaches this morning that will help you accomplish the goal of ruining your life even quicker, especially if you put them together. So the second approach will go much faster, and that is wine. In 
Ecclesiastes 2, we read him say, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I said that I found this too meaningless. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And then he goes on to describe how this too ended up becoming meaningless. See, Solomon might have turned to wine because of his education causing him too much grief and despair. This is what happens even today with a lot of college students. Uh, many university students try that combination, which again is a very highly recommended thing for ruining your life, the combination of pursuing studying all week long and then on the weekends pursuing wine and then throw spring break in there too. It is quite ingenious. It is an obvious goal because wine in this context leads to a dead end. There's always the morning after. You go from hugging a complete stranger to the next morning hugging the toilet. It's a beautiful sight. Then there comes regret and depression and betrayal and disease and addiction. All the ingredients for a recipe of despair. Wine. Highly recommended. Third approach that the writer here says is work. The pursuit of work is also a wonderful way to wreck your life. Verse 4, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks. I filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water and to irrigate many of the flourishing groves. I, I bought slaves, both men and women and others who were born in my household. I owned large herds of flocks. But then he goes on to say, this too is completely meaningless. Houses, vineyards, parks, gardens, reservoirs. Solomon tried to leave a legacy. He tried to pursue meaning in work. And as capitalists... We say to Solomon, way to go. I mean, we pride ourselves on our work. We no longer, in our culture, when people ask us, how are you doing? We no longer say fine. That's, a, you know, that's like an old 80s thing. I mean, today, if somebody asks you how you're doing, you got to say busy. Because anything other than busy is lazy. Busy is a status symbol. Especially if you are almost at the end of your rope, then people look at you with a, a certain revere. In his book, The Time Machine, H.G. Wells describes us quite well in one of his characters. This character is trapped in the future, and he's trying to figure out what to do being trapped in the future. And his character muses, I sat down to watch the place, but I was too restless to watch for long. I'm too Western for a long vigil. I could work at problems for years, but to wait inactive for 24 hours? Well, oh, that's another matter. It's interesting when uh, people asked me about the Quaker church that I went to, and they said, what was that like? What's a Quaker service like? And I tell them that, well, basically, we got together. There was kind of a table in the middle, and then there were all these chairs all around the table in the middle, and we gathered together, and the first hour of worship was sitting in complete silence for an hour. 
And, and the response on people's faces is one of shock and a horror. And then they ask me things like, well, how is that possible? You know, on Remembrance Day when we have to have that one minute of silence, I can barely do that. How do you sit for an entire hour in silence? Now, the fact that we struggle with even one minute on Remembrance Day in silence is a very good sign that we are already well on the way to ruining our life. So I commend you for it. Numerous studies have shown us how addiction to activity, adrenaline to our, an addiction to our adrenaline and to our work are destroying our relationships. They're destroying our biology. And so keep it up. You're doing well. It's also a generous way to support your local pharmacy. You know, you can even kill yourself helping other people. We've all heard of pastors, social workers, uh, teachers that burn out because of how much they pour into other people. Burnout is a highly recommended success for ruining your life. Well, number four is wealth. And again, like I said, combine these if you can. If you can put wealth and work together, it, it's, it's even better. Uh, Solomon writes again in this same a part that he bought slaves. He uh, also owned large herds, flocks, more than any other king. Just kind of a bit of bragging there. Um, he also collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings. Also talks about the singers and the people that he was able to hire because of all of this. Solomon had wealth, more gold and silver, flocks and herds and stocks than anyone else in his kingdom, ever had. Solomon was brilliant. He was a good leader. He understood the advice that former President George W. Bush gave to Americans right after the World Trade Center came down. To comfort the people, to draw the nation together, Letting them know that this is not going to destroy us as Americans. He looked into the television cameras and told all Americans this great leader advice and said, go shopping. It's beautiful. I mean, that is what we need to do to keep our society intact, isn't it? If we're attacked by terrorists or if we have other problems, if there are things in our marriage or things in our own personal life that are kind of bothering us, you know how to fix it? Go shopping. Buy stuff. Keep the economy running. Don't let it be torn apart. It's like the captain of a storm-tossed ship telling his crew, throw all the food overboard. Save the silver and gold. That's good leadership. It's a highly effective way to destroy your crew. I'm actually quite surprised that the Bible doesn't have a verse that even tells us to do just that. But again, I'm sure that if we just search in the Bible with the way that John Calvin recommends and just let it sort of flutter in our brain, there's probably a verse in there that will tell us, go shopping. Now, the fifth one that's brought up here is women. Women, they can ruin your life too. They certainly ruined uh, Solomon's life. I mean, he talks in here about having 
wonderful and beautiful and many concubines. I had everything a man could desire. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 11 and you read a little bit more there, it talks about how he had 700 wives. and, and uh, actually, I think it's 300 wives and 700 concubines, or maybe it's the other way around. I mean, he had 1,000 women. He probably had to have, like, people and secretaries that kept his schedule for him, reminded them of what their names were, and then who knows what happened with all the children and that. But, I mean, he had the delights of a harem that you could not imagine. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, but that's a little bit unfair, how can I possibly ruin my life with women the way Solomon did? I don't have a thousand women. I, I, I don't have the same kind of opportunity that Solomon had. I would love to destroy my life in this way, but I just don't have the opportunity. Well, let me tell you today that you do. We live in the wonderful age of pornography, and you can have more women than even Solomon had. From every nation in the world, of every age group, every age category, every type. It's a delightful little indulgence that has been proven even by mainstream secular organizations like Fight the New Drug to be something that destroys relationships. It ruins lives. It causes impotence. It reduces cognitive abilities. It develops addictions and it leads to risky behavior. It decreases your empathy towards other people. It lowers your sensitivity to violence. It causes apathy. It isolates people and lowers their social skills. It encourages disrespectful and low opinions of women. And now it even comes in flavors of virtual reality and artificial intelligence. It's wonderful. It is an awesome way for ruining your life. And guess what? Everyone else is doing it. I mean, if you're driving a car and you want to smash it into a wall, it's more fun to do it when it's full of other people than to just do it by yourself. A ministry website which will tell you all about how great this tool can be used for ruining your life is www.triplexchurch.com encourage you to go check it out. So there you have it. Follow these five simple and, may I add, biblical points, and you can find that by the end of 2019, your life will be in shambles, meaningless, and ruined. And so I wish you not well. Let me end with verse 9 to 11. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. And my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I'd just take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless, which is our goal. Like chasing the wind, and there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, if you flip to the end of Ecclesiastes, 
you will discover in chapter 12 that now another voice starts speaking. In verse 9 of chapter 12, you read, keep this in mind. The jester was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The jester sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. But my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. See, there is a level of wisdom in what the jester had to say. In some ways, you could say that he gives the best secular advice out there. But there's a deeper wisdom than the wisdom of the jester. It's a wisdom that appears foolish to those who are not seeing with the eyes that God has redeemed us to be able to see with. Because God's work of salvation through Christ crucified changes everything. See, in resisting the jester, some Christians have resisted in ways that are unhelpful. One of the ways that Christians have tried to resist the advice of the jester is through legalism. But what we discover and what Paul talks about is that legalism equally leads to a life of ruin. Other Christians have fallen into the heresy of trying to resist the advice of the jester by claiming that what's wrong is this creation. There's something wrong with the W's. And so we should resist the W's. There's something bad about them. But this approach also leads to a life of ruin. It becomes anti-intellectual, anti-creation, anti-body, anti-human, and in that sense also anti-God. The Christian message in resisting the advice of the jester is not through asceticism, and it is not through legalism, and it's not through being anti-creation. Because the resurrection is at the heart of everything for us as Christians. It's what the crucifixion was the prelude for. Thus, the second voice in Ecclesiastes, the message of the spokesperson who said, fear God and keep his commandments, changes everything. Because it's the fear of God, it's the worship of God that infuses creation with its God-given purpose. 
See, in Christ, creation becomes meaningful, not meaningless. Instead of saying meaningless, meaningless, as Christians, we of all people should be the ones who recognize meaningful, meaningful. See, the problem with legalism, the problem with asceticism, the problem with resisting the W's as if they themselves are bad, is that it looks at the problem and puts it in the wrong place. It says that the problem is the creation. The problem is the wisdom. The problem is the wine. The problem is the work. The problem is the wealth. The problem is the wisdom. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the problem is sin. And when we understand that, we understand that the W's are creations of God. And that the W's only become meaningless when they become the pursuit of our life. When we worship the creation rather than the creator. It's not the creation that's bad. It's not the creation that we should be fighting against. It's sin that we should be fighting against. It's sin distorting the created order. And therefore, in light of Christ, in light of fearing God and keeping his commandments, we go back to the W's, and instead of saying, okay, the jester gave bad advice, and as a Christian, because I don't want to ruin my life, I'm going to resist women. I'm going to resist pursuing wisdom. I'm going to resist wine. is the wrong approach. Instead, in Christ, we look back at the W's and say, they are all meaningful in their right created order. And what I want to resist in Christ is sin, which destroys the purpose of these things. And so, as the doctor, let me give you some better advice, some deeper advice. Some advice that is the wisdom of the truth of who God is. And let's re-look at the five W's in light of Christ. When we put Christ first and it comes to wisdom, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. The one who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better return than gold. There's a way to glorify God with our minds, with exploring things, with understanding, with looking into the depth of creation and nature and science. There's a way of worshiping Him in the pursuit of wisdom when God is first. Wine is the same way. What does the Bible say about wine? God makes wine. Some people need to circle that because they don't realize that. This might be the first time they heard that. God makes wine. And everything God makes is good. God makes wine and he makes wine that gladdens the heart. He makes oil to make the face shine and bread that sustains the heart. 
Paul even said to Timothy, stop being such an ascetic and only drinking water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What about work? The Bible says work hard. And cheerfully at whatever you do, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. And when it comes to wealth, the Bible says, honor the Lord with your wealth. It doesn't say you can't be wealthy, but honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Oh, there's the wine again. And what about women? Look what the Bible says about women. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. My sons love it when I encourage them with that verse. I say, look forward to your future wife. Bible is so pro. Loving and being enraptured by her. And that's not just... Old Testament advice, look what the New Testament says. Paul writes, The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. So you see, in Christ, creation has been restored, redeemed. Wisdom, wine, work, wealth, women, they're not bad. The problem with the jester's advice is he was saying, make those the purpose of your life. And when you do, it leads to emptiness, ruin, meaninglessness. But when you make God the center of your life, when you make Christ the center of your life, it's not now that Christ is the center of my life, I need to shun those things. It's now that Christ is the center of my life, all these things actually find their proper place. Their place that, unlike the jester who pursued them and ended up saying, they're all meaningless. As Christians, when we pursue them properly in the way God made creation, we can say, wow, wisdom and wine and wealth and work and women are meaningful, meaningful, meaningful. God created them good and said, delight in my creation. You don't have to follow the advice of the jester and ruin your life. Christ came to set you free and to give you abundant life. And even for some of you that may say, yeah, but you know, Pastor Steph, I've already ruined my life in one or two of those areas. Well, that's the other part of the good news of what Christ has come to do is the fact that he's come and said, yes, but I can still resurrect new life out of the ashes. Even if that has happened, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's resurrection, and there is a new opportunity to live with meaning and purpose, enjoying me and enjoying my creation forever and ever. So sure, there was truth in what the jester had to say, but you'd be better off following Jesus than the jester because Jesus is the truth
to whom even the jester bows. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the goodness of your creation. We thank you that you created, you created it good and you created us to participate in your creation and in relationship with you. And even when things went bad because of our rebellion, you didn't toss it in a garbage dump, but you became your creation in Christ, became flesh. You rose from the dead in a body, and you are coming back again to restore your created order for all of eternity. Lord, you have also rescued your creation. So, Lord, help us as believers to begin already now to live in light of the new creation and to use your creation in the God-honoring, glorifying way that you intended it to be used. And in doing so, Lord, we will find abundant life and blessing. Thank you for loving us. Amen.